A little quiz for you this morning. What do these people have in common? Kelly Clarkson, Rod Stewart, Rick James, Madonna, Amy Winehouse, Beyonce, the Pope, and Pastor Matt. (laughs) What do all these people have in common? Last week, they were all seen wearing a cross around their neck. It's kind of weird, isn't it, to think that the cross was a form of execution? I mean, the cross was torture. You think uh, Abu Ghraib is bad. You know, you think Guantanamo Bay is bad. This was full-blown, 100% torture. Uh, This was the, the most horrible thing that could happen to you. In fact, eventually it became too horrific for the Romans. They abolished crucifixion in 337 A.D., citing that it was too cruel for humanity. And so the cross has become this universal symbol of Christianity, of of love and respect. And we put the cross on buildings and we there's artwork of the cross and people wear the cross as jewelry. What if somebody was walking around with earrings that were electric chairs? Would that be a little weird? Or, or how about this? If somebody came to work and they were wearing this as their, their decoration, wouldn't that be weird? And yet, you know, these are hard to make, actually. I went online to find out how to make this, and all these suicide websites kept popping up. Like, no, no, I'm okay. I just need to have... um, Isn't it weird, though? I mean, people are are really honoring and showing great reverence for this death thing, this execution. In fact, if you think about it, if you read a book about Gandhi or... Martin Luther King, or Alexander the Great, or Abraham Lincoln. All great people. And you read about their life, most of what you're going to read about is what they accomplished in life, what they did, what their life was about, and all their great achievements. And maybe a little bit at the end about their death, and it would be how they died or what happened. But if you read the Gospels, you find out that that one-third of the Gospels focus solely on the death of Jesus. Half of the book of Mark is about his death. And most of the New Testament is devoted to explaining and talking about the death of Jesus Christ and what it means and what it's all about. So what's the big deal? Why is there such a, uh, this concern and this reverence for the death of Jesus Christ. I looked this up and Buddha died in 485 BC, died of old age at the age of 80. Muhammad died in 4 no, 632 AD from poison. They conquered a Jewish village and they forced a Jewish woman to make a meal for them. She made it with poison. It killed Muhammad. Gandhi was assassinated in 1948, January 30th, 
walking up to the podium to give a speech. This uh, Hindu uh, militant guy came up with a pistol and shot him three times and killed him. Joseph Smith, the founder of the Mormon religion, was gunned down by a mob June 27th, 1844. All these guys were killed or died in a certain way. So here's Jesus, and he's crucified on the cross. So what is the deal? Why did Jesus die? Why did he have to die? Well, here's the reason why. Here's the problem that we face. The problem is most people say this about themselves. I am a good person. Have you heard people say that? They say, I'm a good person. And you know what is basically true? The Bible says that we were created in the image of God. That we were created as, as parts of God, as who He was. He created us out of Himself. And so there is a part of man that is good. But we have this other part, the other side of the coin. I have this app on my iPhone. It's called the Aging Booth. If you have an iPhone, you might know about this. It's really fun. And basically what it is, you take a picture of somebody with your phone, and then you hit a button... And it turns, yes, yeah, some of you have this. It shows you what you look like at 75. It is so cool. Although, my wife didn't think it was very funny. But there's another side of the coin, you know? Things aren't always great, right? Not everybody is good. There are some bad people out there. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who's the author of Sherlock Holmes, thought he would do a prank one time. And so he took out an ad in the London Times, and this is all it said. It said, flee, my friends, all has been revealed. And do you know that the next morning after that paper ran, all kinds of important and professional people suddenly left London? Everyone has something hidden they don't want their mother to know. Everyone. Romans 3.23 says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Notice the word all. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You know, we have a hard time accepting this. We don't want to accept our wrongs. Have you noticed that you can justify just about anything, any behavior, and there's there's layers of wrong? Have you noticed? Well, I'm not as bad as so-and-so, or, you know, uh, I'm a basically a good person. I'm not a criminal, you know, huh? I'm not a, I'm not a prostitute. I'm, a, I'm basically a good person. And we have all these excuses of all these things. So I, I looked up some of these um, levels of bad. These are excuses that people, these are real, actual excuses that, that schools collected for uh, students being absent. All right? So here's the first one. Please excuse Tom for being absent on January 30th through the 31st, as well as the 32nd, and the 33rd. Do you think Tom wrote that note? Please excuse Cynthia for missing school yesterday. I took her to the doctor and they shot her. 
Timothy couldn't go to school yesterday. I kept him home with Larry and Jidus. And of course, the, my own that I came up with is in the sixth grade. Uh, I called the school secretary and I said, uh, uh, disguising my voice, of course, sixth grade, please excuse John from school today. I'm sick and my dad is taking me to the doctor. On the way to church this morning, I'm driving down 160th and because it's raining and there's this woman coming towards me on the side of the road jogging along early this morning. And being a good person that I am, I saw that the road was partially flooded. And I could see it. I'm coming up to the, to the puddle and she's coming up to the puddle. And I'm thinking, she's not going to win this. So being a good person that I am, I slow down. I was going to swerve in the other lane and miss the puddle, but there was a car coming. So I slow down and kind of ease through that puddle so that she didn't get completely soaking wet, right? I mean, what a good guy I am. She turns, because I look and I think, I'm going to get the little smile, you know, thank you. She turns and gives me the bird. Huh. I guess she thought I was a pervert or something. She doesn't know how good she had it. There are levels of bad, right? But we're all good compared to somebody else. The problem with that is that doesn't line up with justice. If that's how you live, you cannot have justice. Justice does not exist in that kind of a world. Can you imagine if you get pulled over? And the policeman walks up to your car and he says, sir, you were driving 95 miles an hour and it's a 65 mile an hour speeding limit. And you say, well, officer, I obey all the other laws. So can you just let that one slide? I mean, come on. I'm I'm doing good with the rest. I don't murder. I don't steal. I think he would chuckle and then ask for your driver's license. Or ask to smell your breath. So, where is the standard? You could compare it to the Grand Canyon. At the the farthest point, the Grand Canyon is about seven miles apart. And so we could say, well, if you can jump across the Grand Canyon, you're good. And we we get the best long jumper in the world. I don't know who it is. I, I always think of Carl Lewis. But whoever it is. And... And at what? He's going to go 29 feet and fall to his death. It's like trying to come up with who is good is equal to that. Every person on the earth. Yeah, you went 10 feet more than me. But guess what? We're all dead. Nobody makes it across. And so the Bible teaches that sin can be summarized under four headings. I'd like to share them with you this morning. The first one is simply the pollution of sin. And these are all in your book uh, this morning, if you have one with you. If not, they are on the table. You can grab one, and it's, uh, it's chapter 2. Mark seven twenty one says this, For from within, out of men's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. And listen to this. All these evils 
come from inside and make a man unclean. I have a glass of water here in front of me. And there is just a tiny, tiny drop of urine in there. Don't ask me how I got that. <laughs> would you drink it? Bear. It's probably, yeah, Bear Grylls would. It's probably 0.0001% of the total amount. I mean, it's tiny. It's slight. Have a grocery out? I'm sorry. Some of, some of you probably would drink it. I'm just kidding. There's no urine in there. But you wouldn't have drank it, right? Because the whole thing was tainted. It was polluted. It was just a tiny, tiny, tiny little bit. But still, it was enough to ruin the whole thing. That's an analogy of the pollution of sin. Number two, the power of sin. Have you ever felt that power before? I mean, I have. We all know Pastor John sins. I felt it. It's that pull to do something that isn't right. That you know you, you really shouldn't say that, you know? But those words, they're just so juicy, you know? You just can't resist. And bow, out, out it goes, right? That pull, that tug to, to do something that you know you shouldn't do. And if you think about it afterwards, you say, why did I say that? And, you, and you, you know, it was like something pulled you, right? It was like some, some monster there that just forced you into it. It's the power of sin. And Jesus said, anyone who sins at all becomes a slave to sin. The third one is the penalty of sin. Justice demands a penalty. If there's going to be justice, there has to be an equal and appropriate penalty. Maurice Clemens, uh, a year ago or so, on a Sunday morning, went into a coffee shop in Lakewood and murdered four policemen, shot them. Justice demanded that he pay for those crimes. Do we want to live in a society where there is no justice? No way. No way. And sin demands a penalty. And the fourth one is the partition of sin. Sin creates a wall between us. It creates a barrier. It, it, when somebody offends you, when they do something wrong against you, it puts a wall between you and them. Have you noticed that? That when they do something that really takes you off, you, all of a sudden there's a barrier, that, that feeling of walking on eggshells. You don't want to see that person. You're angry with them. Uh, when I was growing up, I... I really liked this girl in my class. She was really cute, this blonde girl, and I, I wanted to date her. And so I thought the best way to do that, to get her attention, was it was a snowy day in Washington, which never happens. So I made a snowball, and I was going to throw it at her. So I made this snowball, and it just happened to be the perfect snow. I mean, it was like death snow. Hard, packed, solid. This thing was an ice ball. And I fired it at her as hard as I could. She was a little bit away. And I had like the perfect throw and the perfect shot. It's like one in a million. Hits her right in the eye. 
she screams in pain and agony, runs into the school, tells the teacher, I get busted. The next day she has a black eye. They call my parents. I'm never going to meet this girl again for the rest of my life. She hated me for the rest of the year. And all of her friends hated me. It's this partition. This wall goes up. The barrier. And this happens between us and God because of justice. Now, that's all the bad news that I can give you this morning about this. Here's the good news. The good news is just quite simply this. That is why Jesus died. His death was to satisfy justice. See, what kind of a God would say people have done all these horrible things and, oh, well, it's no big deal. Could you trust a God like that? Could you trust a God? You see, there's always two sides of the coin. What if you're the guy who was robbed? What do you want? Justice, right? You want him to pay. You want your stuff back. But what if you're the criminal? What do you want? Mercy, forgiveness, go easy on me. How does God decide? You know, what's the standard? It's justice. And so justice had to be served. It had to be paid. The penalty had to be addressed. And so Jesus paid the ultimate price. For the sin of humanity by giving his very life. A perfect, sinless, innocent person died a very cruel and torturous death to pay the penalty for the sins of the world. There's a story about a, four, a five-year-old boy and uh, he had a, a, a disease, a very rare, rare blood disease. And uh, by the time he turned five, his body was able to develop uh, an immunity to it. The problem is his younger sister, who was three, her body did not. And so she had the disease as well, and she was going to die. And so the only hope for his sister was a blood transfusion from the brother. So, I mean, how do you explain that to a five-year-old, you know? And so the parents sat down with him, and they said, uh, you know, your, your little sister has this disease, the same one that you had, and, uh, you know, your blood will save her life. And, you know, like a precious, innocent little boy, he says, oh, of course, I, I would love to help my sister. So they go to the hospital and they're on these tables side by side. And uh, they hook up the sister and then they hook up the, the brother and uh, they hook him up to his sister. And he starts to see the blood come out of his arm. And with this trembling voice he says to his mom and dad he says will I start to die right away or will it take a while isn't that precious he thought he was giving his life to save hers and he was willing to do it for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. The prophet Isaiah, 700 years before the birth of Christ, said this about Jesus. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
The Bible uses four illustrations to describe the cross. The first one is the court of law. If you do the crime, you do the time, right? Jesus took our place. We did the crime. He did the time. He took our place. You could illustrate this in like a, a judge who has a son. And his son is a wayward son. And gets busted, commits some crimes, and one day finds himself in his father's court. And the son is there and he comes before the, his dad, who's the judge. And his dad has to satisfy justice. That's his son. He wants to let him go free, but he can't do that because that would violate justice. And so he has to impose a sentence on his very own son. And so that's exactly what he does. He sentenced his son to life in prison. And when he finishes the sentence and slams the gavel on the table, he stands up, takes off his robe, walks down and says, let my son go free. I will serve his life sentence. That is an analogy of what Jesus has done for us. Listen to what Colossians 2.14 says. He forgave us for all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. The second analogy of the cross is the marketplace. It can be compared to debts that are owed and need to be paid back. There was a time in history when if you couldn't pay your debts, you could uh, pay them with slavery, with your life, and just say... I will be your slave for this period of time and work for you completely to pay my debt. And the word ransom comes from that. It was used where the family would raise the money that had to be paid. They would take that and they would pay a ransom to set their family member free from slavery by paying what was owed. And that's how the Bible describes Jesus, that he paid our ransom. He said himself, I have come to give my life as a ransom for many. Number three is the temple. In the temple, you have uh, this process of, of sacrifices being made for people's sins. And it's a tradition that goes way back for mankind, way, way, way back, thousands of years, where people would bring an animal to the temple. Maybe you would bring a goat or a sheep or something like that. And you would bring that animal to the temple and then you would lay your hand on the head of that animal. And you would recite this, this thing. And what would happen is all of your sins would then be transferred to the animal. And so now that animal bore all of your sins. And so then justice has to be served. So the animal was then killed. It was sacrificed to pay that person's penalty. And they had this elaborate system in place. And you had uh, really nice animals for rich people and little doves for poor people and a whole thing, a a sacrificial system in place. And this went on for years after year after year. And when Jesus came along, he said, I am the Lamb of God. He said that because he was referring to that sacrificial system. He said, I am the final sacrifice. 
In the temple of God, the temple in Jerusalem, when Jesus died on the cross, there was a, there was a, uh, the temple had many sections, but the holiest of holy of sections within the temple was covered by this large curtain. And this thing was thick. It's not like a curtain you would hang in your home. It's a seven inches thick of fabric woven together. It literally like a door. And only the holy of holy priests would go into that room one time a year. In fact, if he didn't do it exactly right, he'd be struck dead. And some of them were. And so they started this thing of tying a rope around his leg. And he would wear bells. And so if he got struck by God and killed because he wasn't holy enough, they could pull him out. They'd hear the bells shake. They'd pull him out. Can you imagine if you were the high priest and you're going in there? I would move very slowly. (laughs) You know, I would not want those bells ringing at all. And so when Jesus died... At that moment of death, when he breathed his last, it says that the curtain in the temple of the Holy of Holies was torn in two from top to bottom, ripped right down the middle. What was God saying? What was he symbolizing? That this final sacrifice had been made. No need anymore for sacrifices. It's also compared to the home, and that's number four. The home, you know, have you noticed that um, when something goes wrong in your home, there's an argument, there's a problem, there's a disagreement maybe between you and your sick and significant other, or your spouse, or your children. You know that feeling of walking on eggshells, you know? You're sitting at the restaurant, but you had a big fight beforehand, and so it's kind of like, you know... You're, you're kind of quiet, you know, you're sitting there or, or you're at home and she's in one room and you're in another room and, you know, you don't, it's not friendly. You don't really talk a lot because something's happened and you're walking on eggshells. And it's like that sometimes in my family, but my wife can't stand that. And so she's constantly coming to me and confessing all of her sins. Um, yeah, no. if you believe that, I got something else I want to tell you. Um, it's, it's usually the other way around. But the cross satisfies the peace of the home. The cross is the one thing that allows for peace in a home. Why did Jesus die? The answer is simply this. He died to satisfy justice. Justice that was demanded by a holy God who couldn't just overlook the sins and failures of humanity. It mattered to God. And so he sent his very own son, a perfect, holy, sinless son, to pay the penalty with his life. Jesus purchased your and my freedom with his life. So people ask me all the time, How do you put your faith in something like that? How do you put your faith in a God you can't see or hear or touch? You can read the stories about Jesus, but that's it. They're just, they're there in the Bible. How do you put your faith in that? Well, how do you put your faith in anything? How do you put your faith in your car that it's going to run? 
you know, you just trust it, right? You, you think I've taken care of it. I've checked the oil. It's got gas. I, I trust that it's going to run. You get in that car and you turn the key and you go on. That's how you put your faith in Jesus. You put your trust in him. You trust him with your life. You trust him with the outcome of your life. And you simply just take a step. You just take one step in the direction of living your life as one who now trusts Jesus with your life. It really is that simple. I'd like to to turn your attention to page 93 in your book. If you could grab it and find that page, it's near the end. Page 93 is a simple prayer. This prayer uh, is a prayer that anyone could pray to begin to put their trust in Jesus. Trusting in Jesus with your life, trusting in him as God, as Lord, as the one who paid the penalty for all the bad things you've ever done your whole life. And some of you have already prayed this prayer, and some of you have not. And maybe you read through that and you think this morning, well, I'm not really ready yet. I'm not convinced. That's okay. That's okay. We'll refer to it later on as we go. But I wanted to familiarize you with it this morning. Have you see it, have you read it, and acknowledge it. Because this is one way that you can begin to put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ. If today you're ready to do that, you say, man, I've heard enough. I like what I see. I'm convinced. I'm ready to do this. I'm ready to pray this prayer. Then I want to encourage you to do, to do that today. And if not, it's all right. Just continue to ch- kick the tires and check things out. That's what this is all about. It's a safe place and it's an opportunity for you to consider the claims of Jesus Christ. I completely understand so uh, let it just close up, you, you know, close up your book and let it move on from there. But for those who are ready, I would like to lead us in a prayer. Up to this point, we haven't prayed at all. Uh, as you've been here with us these, all these weeks, this is our first prayer together. And as we go later on throughout the course, we will begin to add more and more uh, elements and aspects of our faith like worship and other things. But today... I would like to lead out in prayer. And so I'm just going to say the prayer. And uh, for you, what's appropriate, you, just, you can just sit there. Uh, some people like to close their eyes. Some people bow their head. It doesn't really matter, okay? There is no set way to pray. Uh, the Bible does not include a single teaching on the postures of prayer, all right? It doesn't say that to talk to God, you have to sit in the uh, Indian-style position, on the floor, bowing your head, holding your hand. It doesn't, doesn't have anything like that, okay? So God wants you to come to him just as you are, just as you can. One of the most precious prayers I've ever heard in my life contained the F word. You might be surprised by that. A gentleman came to our church, and uh, th- just looking at this guy, you can see he's yeah, living a rough life, Okay? living life fast and hard. And he had come to the end of that. And he came up to me at the end of the service and he said, 
I like what you're saying. I want to give my life to Jesus. What do I do? I said, well, let's, let's, we can, we can do that. We'll say a prayer. And so we knelt down. He said, I've never prayed before and I don't know what to say. I said, well, just be yourself. Talk to God like you would to your friends. So he said, Lord, this is Bob and I'm effed up. So I shook a little bit. It's the first time I heard that at the altar. But afterwards, I knew that God loved that prayer. He loved that prayer. That was right from the heart. So that, if there, were, if there was a criteria for prayer, that's what it is. Not swear words. From the heart. So I'm going to say a prayer. You don't have to pray it out loud. You can pray it in your mind if this is for you. But let's pray together this morning. Father in heaven, we come before you through the wonderful and amazing sacrifice that Jesus has made for us. We thank you, God, for his courage, his obedience, the life that he lived to dedicate his whole life to being our Savior and giving up his life. What a selfless life he led. A life of sacrifice and love and compassion. There is no one in the whole world who has given as Jesus has. And so, Lord, we just come to you today out of just sheer gratitude for that. And ask that as we trust you with our lives, that you would show us your goodness and your love. Reveal to us, Lord, who you are and how we should live. Show us our purpose in life and the reason that we're here. Grant us peace and hope. Transform our character and our lives to become the people that we dream to become. To do the things we dream to do and to achieve those things we dream in our heart to achieve. Each one of us, Lord, has experienced the brokenness of sin and the separation of relationships and friendships and partnerships. And we feel the weight of that today and ask that you would take it from us, that you would remove all guilt and all shame, that you would present us before the Father as guiltless, free, forgiven, pure. It's a difficult concept for us, God, to see ourselves as pure, as free. But I pray that you would grant us the assurance of our faith and the, the comfort of knowing we're forgiven. So we accept you, Jesus, as Lord and Savior and pray that you would guide our life, guide our paths and Lead us into righteousness. Lead us into your purpose and your will. Thank you for the cross and thank you for today, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.